Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. Our play this week is Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, a tale taken from the epic Greek myth of the Trojan War. And here's a quick synopsis before we begin. The story starts years into the war, as the Greeks besiege the city of Troy. A Trojan prince, Troilus, falls in love with Cressida. She's the daughter of a priest, Calchas, who's defected to the Greek side. Troilus's uncle, Pandarus, arranges for them to sleep together secretly. Meanwhile, both sides argue about their next moves in the war. Troilus's brothers, the Trojan princes Hector and Paris, debate about whether they should return Helen, the Greek queen who eloped with Paris, to Troy. Hector wants peace, but the young Troilus urges them to continue fighting. Their sister, the prophetess Cassandra, warns them that it will all end in disaster. Unfortunately, she's under a curse, which means that she's never believed. In the Greek camp, Achilles, the greatest of all of the heroes, refuses to fight anymore after being snubbed by the generals Agamemnon and Menelaus. Morale is generally low, and Ulysses, another commander, comes up with a plan to set up a duel between the Trojan crown prince Hector and a Greek hero. He chooses Ajax as the Greek champion, as a deliberate insult to Achilles, in the hope that this will goad him into fighting again. Ajax's slave, Thersites, wanders the camp, mocking them all. Cressida's father, the treacherous Calchas, arranges an exchange of a Trojan prisoner in return for his daughter, and Cressida is forced to go to the Greek camp. Hector and Ajax fight their duel, which ends in a draw. Under a temporary truce, the Trojan princes come to the Greek camp for a feast. There, Ulysses helps Troilus spy on Cressida in the moment she agrees to become the lover of the Greek soldier Diomedes for her own protection. Troilus, heartbroken, throws himself into battle the next day. The Trojans nearly defeat the Greeks, but in doing so, Hector kills Achilles' lover, Patroclus. In a grief-fueled rage, Achilles returns to battle, gruesomely slaughtering Hector in revenge and dragging his corpse around the walls of Troy. The Trojans return to the city for the funeral of their hero. Declan and Nick staged this production with Cheek by Jowl in 2008 and also separately with the Bergtheater in Vienna in 2000. And now, over to them. So, hello Declan and Nick. Hello Lucy. Hello Lucy. So today we're going to talk about Troilus and Cressida which is a kind of a strange, weird play. It really disintegrates as it goes through the plot. And it comes hot on the heels of one of Shakespeare's most famous hits, Hamlet. Why choose Troilus and Cressida? What appeals to you about this play? Well, it's a play you find particularly interesting, I think, when you're young, because it's full of ideas and it has a very clear mission. It's kind of anti-war and it shows how leaders who lead wars are stupid. And it's very, very clever. And it has some brilliant writing in it. I think it wasn't a popular play when it was performed. Apparently it's possible that it wasn't actually performed at the time that it was written. And it was written in the closing years of Queen Elizabeth's reign. England was at war, and it was at war with Ireland. And the war was very bloody, and England was basically losing. 
and it's very much like Vietnam for the Americans in the 1960s. Mentions of Ireland in Shakespeare's work are kept to a minimum because it's kind of like a, a taboo subject. And it was only at the very end of Elizabeth's reign under Mountjoy that Ireland was finally, well, it wasn't finally, <laughs> it was <laughs> brought to heel to a certain degree that the horrible 17th century happened to Ireland. But war was almost a taboo subject. It's very difficult for us to understand that when James takes over in 1603, he brought peace because Elizabeth's reign been very turbulent. The people were exhausted with war and, and people from all over England were losing family members, were losing sons. It was like sending your kids to the Somme. And it was hugely important an issue to people. It was an, it was an obsession. And so it was hardly ever written about because the Lord Chamberlain would just not give permission for it. So this play is a very anti-war play when there would have been a lot of anti-war feeling growing in England. And that possibly accounts for the fact that it wasn't performed. James Shapiro has developed this at much greater length and much greater depth in his fantastic book, 1599, which actually places Troydson Crest, among other plays, in the actual living experience of the Londoners who would have gone to see it at the time. And it's remained popular very often through universities. Nick and I both did it at university. It's very cynical and it's very clever. And so what did you both play in it at university, your first encounter with this play? I played Deiphobus, whose name is longer than his line, and I can still remember the line. The line is... It is the Lord Aeneas. What did you play, Declan? I played soldier and I actually had no line. So, um, <laughs> anyway, hey-ho. The play itself is incredibly interesting. It's probably the first play after Hamlet. Hamlet, in a way, is an outrageous play because it's about a revenge hero who doesn't take his revenge. And it's a play about a hero who does nothing. And in order to do nothing, of course, he has to do everything. He has to even direct a play. But... It's about somebody essentially who's doing nothing. So in a way, there's something sort of perverse and transgressive and a little bit clever about Hamlet in a way, but it never crosses that line into cleverness. All the evidence points to the fact that Hamlet was an enormous hit. I think it's that he had this huge success and great failures are dangerous for an artist, but terrific successes are also bring their own danger. It's quite discombobulating because in a way you don't know what you have to reach for. You know, you weep like Alexander for the struggle, really. And he decided to do something even more clever than Hamlet that was going to be even more outrageous. And so what he decides to do is he decides to take on Homer and he's going to take the main characters from the Iliad and show how funny and silly most of them are. The war is being disastrously led by the generals who can't agree and um, who bicker among themselves and, and play silly games with each other um, while bloodshed is happening. And that's clearly a satire on, on what was happening in, in England at the time in London. And when I was young, it appealed to my show-off cynicism because it was a very clever play. It's a very kind of clever dick play. But I think it's the most un-Shakespearean of the Shakespeare plays that I know. So why would you describe this as an un-Shakespearean play? Well, because from my perspective, the glory of Shakespeare is the relentless horizontality he has with his characters. He absolutely refuses to judge them. He doesn't even judge Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And at the end, when Malcolm says this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen, it's a moment when we have to think, well, that's not quite what we've seen. It's more complicated than that because Shakespeare manages to maintain this extraordinary horizontal view. The image I'd like to give, if it's, if it's at all useful, is to imagine that there's a long straight tunnel dug through a huge mountain 
and that to see through the tunnel, we have to put our feet exactly in a position so that our eyes are exactly horizontal with the tunnel, and then we can see through the whole tunnel. But if we're slightly superior, in other words, if we're slightly above the tunnel, and we look down, it, we won't see very far, we'll see nothing. And if we sort of are very inferior, if we're under the tunnel, we aren't going to see anything at all. You have to be absolutely bang in alignment with it to see it. And the glory of Shakespeare is that he's able to do that. Why can't we do that? Because we like judging, because we like moralizing, because we like to make ourselves safe. But if we can spend as much time as possible looking horizontally through things, we can see that the world is a wonderful place. But above all, we have to do something very, very humble and just look where our shoes are and make sure we're in that place where we can see through things to the, the horizontal end. But the temptation to judge and punish and blame or to be bitter, to go under. And I think Shakespeare got discombobulated. I suspect that the massive success of Hamlet probably surprised him, probably delighted him, but also made him probably feel possibly kind of invincible. And he's got to do something to eclipse it. And, you know, as we know, there are a lot of people who have one big success early on and, and never repeat it, and they anyway become victims of that. So he's not going to do that, he thinks, and he's going to take on the Iliad, he's going to take on all Homer's great characters, and he's going to debunk them. And I think he kind of descends into satire. He satirizes these things. Now, satire is a wonderful form, I love it. But the problem with satire in terms of art is that when you satirize something, you put yourself in a position above it. And however great a satirist is, like Jonathan Swift or Pope or whatever, they're still in a slightly elevated position. And they put you, they flatter you into being a slightly elevated position as well. So the two of you, the artist and the observer, are kind of looking down on the subject matter. Yeah, and it's great fun, and it's kind of community building, and then we can all be part of the club that's looking down at these people who are under us. But my, I mean, the reason that Shakespeare is so important to me is that he manages to maintain that horizontality, and he never goes into judgment. But I think he veers into it in Troilus and Cressida. It's got a very funny beginning. It's like he's, 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 he's sending it up. He makes it so clear that he's being hokum. I remember Marianne Oldham did it brilliantly as, as Helen of Troy in, in our production. Um, and it starts, um, in Troy there lies the scene from Isles of Greece, the princes Orgulus, their high blood shaved, have to the port of Athens sent their ships fraught with the ministers and instruments of cruel war, 60 and 9 that wore their crownets regal. It's, it's so obviously a send-up of... Um, so, like, deliberately overblown language. Yes, deliberate, deliberately, like, yes. Orgulus. Orgulus, <laughs> exactly. And, and, but it's all sending up a bombastic previous style of theatre around the time of the Spanish tragedy and so on. He's sort of sending it up. I think he opens a bad door, and we should breathe a great sigh of relief that he slammed it shut again. And then after that, I suspect he suffered after Taurus and Cresta, and he, he comes to write his greatest plays. And, and it would be... A pity if he'd stopped with Hamlet, because I think Macbeth, Othello and Leo go far further than anything that's in Hamlet. And so given that it's not very Shakespearean amongst mm. Shakespeare's plays, given that it, it is quite superior about mm. how stupid mm. these generals are, yeah. what is it that's still there in Troilus and Cressida that made it so appealing for you to put on stage? Because it's brilliant. The lines are amazing. And it is very funny, and it's very clever, and it does give this nihilistic view of the world. I mean, it ends with Pandarus, who's a kind of go-between. He sets up this 
relationship between Troilus and Cressida. He comes on the stage as we assume Troy is falling, and he's, he basically says, I'm, I'm suffering from a venereal disease and I give you my diseases. So he wishes his scabs on the audience. <laughs> you think, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty strong. But at the end of the day, I've, I found myself, as I get older, thinking nihilism is a bit boring, really. I mean, you have to look at it sometimes in your life. But actually, you've got to stand up and live as well. There are many very good plays that tell us life's a piece of shit. Very, very, very good plays and very good works of art that just tell us it's all it's just all crap. But I don't know, it's not enough. You need a bit more oxygen in you than that. See, even in a play as negative as King Lear, about terrible, terrible suffering pain, there's still somehow oxygen in it. You can still feel good to be alive. It doesn't just say, you're, you're so stupid not to despair. He'd had also a big hit with Romeo and Juliet. So many people sort of still look at Troilus and Cressida and think, oh, it'll be an ancient Greek version of Romeo and Juliet. And it kind of isn't. Well, it's sort of about anything other than Troilus and Cressida, this play. They get very little stage time and really only kind of half a scene together where it's just them. No, I know. And then the, the terrible thing in the plot is that they get together in Troy while it's under this appalling siege. And then her father, who defects to the Greek camp, and he asks for her to be given in exchange for um, some Trojan prisoners. And so she goes to the Greek camp. And on her arrival there, she's basically um, assaulted by, by the Greek army. And she has to go to Diomedes for protection. And that's a very brutal scene. It's, and it, because it's written by Shakespeare, it's very, very, very unsettling what happens in that scene. But what happens then is that Troilus goes to the Greek camp and Ulysses decides to tell him that Cressida's in fact being false, whatever false means, that she's in fact now with Diomedes, having sworn her eternal love to Troilus. And so he takes Troilus to see a love scene between Diomedes and Cressida. But while that's happening, Thersites comes on stage, and he shows us Ulysses showing Troilus the scene between Diomedes and Cressida. So you have this incredibly complex kind of renaissance magic box of i'm telling you to see this person who's telling somebody else to see something else to see something else and it's very very clever but i don't get overwhelmed by my feelings watching Taurus and cressida it's the sort of play i'd have done when i was young because I, i'd want to prove how clever i was but i've had to dismantle my cleverness to grow older it, it wouldn't really um, interest me so much i don't think to do the play anymore when i started i started being clever and and competing with other young directors and so on and going through the supermarket of ideas and i weaned myself off that slowly and painfully well i think it's also so interesting because in making the work you discover an awful lot about your relationship with the work that instead of going in with all the answers you make a thing and it changes your attitude towards the thing that you've made. You look at what you've made and then you discover a lot about yourself. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's, of course, what art is. You know, we, we see things and, by, and the things that we see do tell us things about ourselves. And I think we just should all be really glad that Shakespeare didn't go down that satire route and that uh, he suffered a bit and came back and became much less clever. There's nothing clever about, you know, who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him and let him smell his way to Dover. There's nothing clever in them, but there's a lot that's kind of clever in, in Troilus and Cressida. Having said that, it is wonderful. And Troilus has this amazing speech, you know, um, yet after all comparisons of truth, as truth's authentic author to be cited, as true as Troilus shall crown up the verse, 
I think Shakespeare's worried, as I am, about doctrines of authenticity, that the one thing that you are, and it's dangerous talking about the truth because none of us knows what the truth is. So right now, this seems to be a play that you wouldn't put on again. And there are lots of plays that you've come back and back and back to, but Troilus and Cressida isn't one. What was it all the way back in 2006, 2007, when you were getting ready to put this play on? What was it then that really compelled you to do the play that's changed now? I think the need to investigate it, because it is Shakespeare, and he has been somebody I've pledged my trust in over the years. And I'm not disappointed by the play at all. Who am I to be disappointed by something as as great as Troilus and Cressida? One thing I would say is that we've always been served really well by the actors. We had Birgit Mitchemeyer, who was Cressida at the Borg Theatre, and we had Alex Waldman and Lucy Briggs Owen as Troilus and Cressida over here. And we had amazing ensembles. But I just now sort of see it differently and I appreciate more this great horizontality and how it's, the, it's his simple avoidance of judgment and it's his simple alignment on one side of that tunnel. And I hadn't really twigged that quite so vividly, but it's only in recent years that I, I've realised that's what singles him and Chekhov and other people out from others. What about you? What is it that you find really compelling about Troilus and Cressida? Well, I think I I have a, a memory that I think it was my, and not my fault, but my idea to do Troilus way back in 2007. And I was drawn to it apart from it's, there are brilliant, brilliant scenes, but it's also a great play for characters and a great ensemble play because all the characters are wonderful. It seemed to me, and still seems to me, is that it's very much about war and also the delusion that war is glamorous. And I felt we needed to make that statement, which it's true for people who've never experienced war, that it has a potential of glamour about it. And that counterpoint between glamour and the reality, the bloody reality, the bloody, dirty, shitty reality of war seems to me at at the heart of the play. Yeah, like later on, he has a fellow talk about the pride, pomp and circumstance of glorious war, which is a very strange line, because I've met many soldiers and talked to them about their jobs, and they never talk about the pride, pomp and circumstance of glorious war. If you ask soldiers why they do it, they nearly always say, we do it for our mates. And Othello, who suffers like all of the great Shakespeare characters from now on, from a a gnawing sense of inauthenticity. When he talks about pride, pomp and circumstance of glorious war, you feel like it's a tabloid newspaper speaking. So it's like he's seeing himself from the outside as what a soldier is supposed to sound like. And that's a very important theme in the play, is that there is no glamour in war. And they're denying war, and they're singing love songs, and they're having affairs, and the the Greeks are sort of playing silly childish games to humiliate Achilles. And when they start playing basically silly buggers with Ajax, and humiliating Ajax by playing funny games and pretending to ignore him, and them all walking past and ignoring him, and they end up playing silly childish games, like, you know, they go back to, to, to being at public school, I suppose. These big generals do. I suppose that's what it is. They revert, except they've also now got weapons of mass destruction on their hands. There's something very plausible about that. 
this all the time that these terrible things are happening. I remember, Nick, we were thinking about how to do the armor, and we were on tour with the Russian actors in Chile, and we were being taken around by our guide um, around Santiago de Chile. It was quite a quiet Saturday afternoon. And suddenly there were some protesters there who were indigenous people from Chile. And um, there was a very small piece of demonstration. Suddenly these three police vans came up and started clobbering them. And Nick and I looked round and there were people sitting there licking ice creams completely calmly in a completely different rhythm. And the most frightening thing wasn't so much just the, the people being treated with this incredible brutality. But it was kind of like the silence from the crowd licking ice creams. But I remember we noticed the armour that the police were wearing, and it was sort of, well, how would you describe it? It was classic riot gear armour, but the potential for both glamour and violence in the same costume did strike us quite strongly. So that's how we went with the production here. Um, we used this white plastic armour for the Trojans and black for, for the Greeks. And Troy is also very important for now because, you know, it's, a, it's an unsettled alliance of Western nations joining together to invade the, the Middle East and to be back by Christmas. And then you're not back by Christmas and everybody's surprised again. And so how much time do you need for wisdom of hindsight to pass? The other really important line is when, during the Greek rows about it, they say, Troy in our weakness stands, not in her strength. In other words, it's not because Troy's strong, it's because we're weak. And I think at election time, it's a very good idea to think about that. Did they get in because they were strong or did they get in because we were weak? It's really interesting to see how theatre and the politics that are happening at the moment can intertwine. Nick and I were doing it at the Bull Theatre in Vienna as the 20th century became the 21st century. And I remember standing on this very impressive balcony at the front of the Bull Theatre at midnight, looking out over this huge square. And Nick and I went to a demonstration to boo Haider, who was being um, inaugurated as the Prime Minister by the Chancellor. He didn't last long, but he was the first of the populist politicians to come along. And there have been horrifying election results and um, in, in recent years, particularly the terrible year of 2016. And sometimes I think we need to repeat to ourselves that line, Troy in our weakness stands, not in her strength. We came back one day and we discovered that the dressing rooms at the Borg Theatre, that the corridors were completely packed, and um, the stage doorman had let in the armed police, the police that were patrolling the demonstrators, and we said, what, what are they doing here? And they said, well, we let them in because it's cold. I said, yes, but the demonstrators are in the cold as well. We went down the corridors, and they're so aggressive, those riot shields and guns and God knows what. And they were sort of packed down the corridor, sheltering from the snow. And actors were sort of going past them on stage. And I couldn't handle it, actually. And I said, I'm sorry, they'll have to go, or, or we'll have to cancel the performance. It was very uncomfortable, the idea of having the police inside and not the protesters. And I know it just completely shone a light into the heart of what was happening in the play of Troilus and Cressida. The other thing that seems to be really unhealthy in the heart of the Troilus and Cressida relationship is actually something that we encountered last week with Much Ado, which is that there's a third person in the relationship with them. You know, last week we talked about the fact that Don Pedro is really the one brokering the relationship between Claudio and Hero, and that that is really unhealthy and they have to sort of detach from him by the end of the play in order to keep going. But here, Troilus and Cressida do not exist as a couple. 
without Pandarus. Yes, he's brought them together and he gets off on the fact that he can control these people by, yeah, by facilitating their love. But, you know, he should introduce them and then bugger off and, and, and leave it, you know. Yes, that is very uh, unhealthy. And it seems to be something that, that Shakespeare is fascinated by because he keeps on sort of reforging this pattern in lots of the plays. I mean, you've got the nurse with Romeo and Juliet. Yes who's facilitating in ways that are really problematic. Yes. You've got Don Pedro in Much Ado, mm. and here it seems to be the most extreme version of it, that Pandarus's interest in this relationship seems really troubling, and you see within it a very sad and lonely man. Yeah, I think there's something arguably dodgy about any matchmaking, because it's often to do with, you know, people who are older, and they kind of want to live again through this. But then it's like... They want to be central to the whole thing, and they're not. They have to be excluded in order for that couple to work. So, yeah, but I think it's quite human. I think the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, though, is, is to do with the fact that it's another big Shakespearean theme, that where are the parents, where are the adults? There's no one to look after anyone anymore. So, Declan, there's a, a really interesting piece of double casting in this production, which is that you had Marion Alden playing both... Helen, the woman who's caused the war, who's stormed through the middle of your production as a sort of ultra-celebrity in an incredible ball gown. But she also played Cassandra, the prophet that no one listens to. Why have one actress playing those two parts? I think it was the only piece of double casting in the production. I, I don't think it's actually fair to say that Helen's caused the war. I mean, the men have caused the war, and... I completely agree. As the part of the Iliad I would always rewrite. Helen is not the cause of the war. <laughs> of course she doesn't cause the war. The men use her to cause the war. Yeah, I, I think you've explained it already. Because I mean, Helen was was always with Paris and they were sort of always being photographed in it and they were, they were they're doing a magazine cover. Lots of makeup artists and so on. And, and he was in his military uniform and, and she was sort of hanging on to him. It's exactly like one might expect a cover. So there's that whole celebrity um, camp the hokum that surrounds war and then cassandra who's the person who sees the real thing that's really going to happen and she's going to be terribly destroyed afterwards and that no one will listen to so nick uh, i think you've got a real talent in pointing out within scripts things that are sometimes overlooked or maybe small in the text that are actually really pivotal in the world of the play was there anything in troilus and cressida that you felt was really important to point up in that way well, I'm not sure it was my decision, but um, Thersites is a particularly vivid character, I think, though he may not have that much to say. And we played him by the wonderful Richard Kant as a drag queen. And I think what that does point up quite strongly is the the sort of homosocial nature, particularly of the Greek army. And there was one sequence, again, I don't know where it came from, but all the men in this hyper-male camp actually simply danced with each other it was ballroom dancing and it was very touching somehow because you got a strong sense of these isolated men together unselfconsciously dancing yes we did that to point up with the absence of women you know women are sort of become present by their absence i remember once doing a workshop in a prison in rio and being taken around. I did the drama workshop with them, and then we were taken around to show the cells. And I can't explain it, but it was very moving. But the way that the men had, each of them had tended to their cells, you felt very much the presence of women. It was like they were trying to make women happen somehow, unconsciously. There was just something in the the cells 
that looked like their mothers had made the beds or that they'd, I don't know what it was. There was a sort of domestic feel to it that I found quite incredibly moving. And I think that was um, why we had Richard dressed as a woman singing the song and the mental ballroom dancing. This is the missing of women. Do you think it was by putting this figure that crossed genders, that broke down the barriers, that created those opportunities like this intimate ballroom dancing to appear and to see the underside of this highly heteronormative, highly uber-masculine, highly violent atmosphere that actually involves denying quite a human thing that's going on underneath, and it breaks through when Thersites is on stage. Yes, I think so. I think that Thersites is the most obviously queer character, although Patroclus and Achilles are clearly lovers. But in the play, he's referred to as his masculine whore. So it's it's still pretty, um, if you like, heteronormative. It's sort of like... It, there's nothing particularly equal about the Achilles-Patroclus relationship, but that transgression came from the way we treated Thersites, and in the end he's going to show us what's really happening. We see Ulysses basically destroying Troilus by showing him Diomedes and Cressida. Because Thersites comes on to show us Ulysses showing Troilus, showing, yeah, exactly. seeing Cressida. We get this moment where, once again, Thersites is the person who draws back the veil and says, watch out, this is what's really going on. Yes, but again, he's also an unreliable narrator. People talk about the invention of the unreliable narrator in the 19th century novel, but actually all of Shakespeare's characters are unreliable narrators. I mean, don't leave your common sense outside. I have heard extraordinary things said about the Ulysses speech. Ulysses has this great speech of degree and that everyone has to be kept in their place and that there's a strict hierarchy. And once we don't um, observe that hierarchy, everything falls apart. I've heard many people say this, this is Shakespeare's point of view. Of course it isn't. It's Ulysses' point of view. And he's talking about the kind of chaos, I think, that results from having this very rigid social structure. That's the point of view of Ulysses. I mean, the whole thing is heavily ironised. The idea that Shakespeare suddenly unveils himself, steps forward and makes a speech on behalf of the old Tory party about some feudal hierarchy is, is quite deranged. As we often talk about in these episodes... Um, you're both quite averse to solving a production, giving us a nice, tied-up message to take away at the end. And that seems particularly true of the way that you finished this production of Troilus and Cressida with Pandarus's final speech. Nick, could you describe how you staged that? Pandarus is on stage uh, on his own, coming out with these appallingly terrifying lines about uh, disease and war. And in the background is the delusional, triumphant, jolly military band playing, um, which in a sense is a little bit similar to the end of Three Sisters, with the irony of the jolly music against the misery of the Three Sisters. And Pandrus is miserable, and in our production he shoots himself. And again, this jolly music playing in the background... And I often find that for you guys, it's all about context. You know, nothing is sad unless it's in contrast to something else that looks like it's happy. And the discomfort of the end only exists because it's at right angles to this party that we're hearing off stage. Yes. I mean, we live in a relational universe. And, you know, in order for there to be, to be light, there has to be darkness. Uh, in order for the darkness, there has to be light. Well, thank you very much, Declan and Nick. And that's where we're going to finish for today with Troilus and Cressida. Great, thanks very much, Lucy. Yeah, thanks. Bye, Lucy.
for listening to this episode of Not True But Useful. If you want to take a look at some images and footage from Declan and Nick's 2008 production of Troilus and Cressida, you'll find a link in the podcast notes. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kinneen for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale. This was our last episode in this series, but we do have some bonus material coming your way. Keep an eye out on Cheek by Jowl's social media, newsletter and website for an exclusive new release next week. Thank you.